0: So the, the first one, actually, there's a couple here that are, are somewhat interrelated. And I will also make some space, if anybody's got anything pressing, just, you know, alive now. But the first two, uh, uh, two questions are somewhat interrelated, because it's really questions about this word samata or shamata or samadhi, as we sometimes hear it um, from the Sanskrit or the Pali, and is it, you know, asking whether samatha is a, is a, a skill or a state and how the, the jhanas fit into this description of samatha. I mean, samatha is, is used in a number of different ways in the early teachings. On, on one level, it describes a whole range of meditative practices that people engage in. But it's, it's, it, in another way, it's made slightly distinct from other practices, such as bound, uh, Brahma Vihara practices or insight practices. And here it's often talked about a, a collectedness, the collectedness of the mind. Now, this, this is, I, I hesitate a little bit to use the word concentration because I think Samat is a little bit different than concentration. Um, but certainly within samatha, there's a, a couple of key features. Um, one of them is actually the capacity to be able to sustain attention on a chosen meditative object. That sounds easier than it actually is, as you may have noticed. Hmm? I mean, for all, all meditative practices will have some element of samatha within them and the encouragement to move towards, develop towards being able to sustain attentiveness on a chosen meditative object, whether that object is the breathing, or whether that object is the posture, um, or the body. But the skill here, or the key word, is being able to sustain. Now, many people, of course, this is, they discover the Achilles heel of their practice, you know they come and they sit and they have the intention you know to apply their attention to the breathing process or to the body and it doesn't stick you know within moments the attention seems to be drawn to to something else now in an insight practice that would actually be considered fine you know you would actually make that whatever you were drawn towards You know, give it the same element of attentiveness or mindfulness and then return to your chosen object. In one pointedness practices or practices of collectedness, you actually really sustain both the intention and the attention with the chosen object. It doesn't mean your attention is never drawn away, but you don't have much interest in what it is drawn to. Now, if you look at the early texts, you know, there's a tremendous value given to developing this skill, including speaking quite frequently about the jhanas in the early texts. And again, you know, there's different ways of relating to the jhanas. And some of you uh, most likely at least have a sort of working familiarity with the, the jhanas of, of rapture, of happiness, of peace, of equanimity as absorptions as absorptions, as abiding absorption states. So sometimes they're referred to as states that are uh, almost confined to meditative periods. And at other times, they're actually spoken about that these qualities are developed to such an extent that they are the place where the mind abides, whether on a cushion or off a cushion. As meditative practices, um, you know, the Buddha is always very clear that the jhanas are not an end in themselves, and yet at the same time, valuing them deeply. Because the mind that has access to this kind of collectedness, this kind of stillness almost inwardly, is a mind that is so inclined towards understanding, so inclined towards insight so receptive to understanding, we might say. So there's both these ways of seeing as both a meditative state and as a mind that is really inclined towards insight. Um, For a while, the jhanas really dropped out of Popularity, you know, I mean, I'm talking about for a few hundred years, that the, the jhanas really kind of dropped out of popularity because, you know, there was this sense that people would become terribly attached to these states. And then in more recent times, the last few decades, I, I think there has been much of a resurgence of, insi- uh, of interest in the jhanas. Um, I personally have never met people who get deeply attached to these states because, you know, that immediately disappears the jhana. So, you know, you get attached at a price, you know, it will actually really destroy that samatha. But there's tremendous insights to be found within the absorptions. You know, if you think just of the first two of rapture and happiness, it is, I think, quite startling for people in meditative development to really, really glimpse inwardly generated joy and inwardly generated happiness. I think this actually changes our whole relationship to to how we live in the world. You know, because if you truly uh, glimpse that inwardly generated happiness and joy, you actually know that there's nothing that's going to be an outcome of craving that is actually going to provide that same depth of happiness and joy. So it's going to have a very powerful effect on really muting and softening that craving impulse um, that will deliver, you know, short term joy, short term happiness. And as you mute the craving impulse, you know, you're very much kind of muting also the identification and the selfing impulse. So there is, there's very profound insight held within the development of these very qualities. You know, if you consider the quality of peace, what it would be like not only to sort of glimpse at in a meditative session, but actually to learn to abide in that peaceful way of being. Now, the Buddha often described Nibbana as the deepest peace described liberation as the deepest peace, spoke of it as one of the great virtues and qualities to be, be developed. Because when you think about peacefulness or peace, it means that we're not living in a state of argument or contention with the moment. You know, we're not going through the litany of, you know, I I need this to be different or I want this to be different or this isn't fair or why isn't this happening or why is this happening or why isn't something else happening. But this peaceful state that the Buddha speaks about was certainly not just a meditative absorption, it was a way of being present in the world, a way of being present in life and learning how to step out of the, the contractedness of, of contention and conflict and argument. So, you know, personally, and, and then, you know, if we look, I'm just talking about the first four jhanas. If we look at the quality of equanimity, you know, equanimity is really said to be the, the crown of all of the Brahma Viharas. It's also used interchangeably with nibbana, and it is really where there is the deepest cooling of the fires of craving and aversion and selfing. So, when this is glimpsed, you know, in meditative practice, it's a tremendous, I think, liberation found within the cultivation of equanimity, whether it's our capacity, you know, to be equally near all things, or whether it is that genuine cooling of greed, hatred, and delusion. Equanimity is actually deeply liberating. Now, some people are, uh, I mean, these qualities, we all have the capacity to develop these qualities within our own hearts of minds. They are seeds of potentiality that live within each of us. So we may not have the interest or even the inclination to develop them as absorptions, but as kind of cornerstones of all meditative development, they're actually pretty crucial qualities to be able to, to focus on, to be able to, to develop. Some people have a, a kind of almost like a temperamental inclination, I would say, um, towards jhanas or absorption states. And some people don't. And it doesn't make their practice any better or any worse than the other. Um, it is simply a, almost a question of temperament plus time and effort and dedication. But everybody has the capacity for developing these qualities as places of abiding, of abiding in every moment, in every situation, in, in every circumstance, learning to bring forth that the, and, and, to, and to develop and to nurture and mature those seeds of potentiality that live within us. This capacity to sustain attention really does... I think really require quite a lot of dedication and, and applied effort and willingness to begin again, and uh, you know, commitment and enthusiasm. But it, it is one of the, you know, one of the key skills, I would say, of meditative development, being able to sustain attention on a chosen object for more than one second at a time, you know, is, is pretty. Pretty significant and important. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll just go through one more and then just see if there's anything that's particularly up at the moment. Uh, so there's a, a couple here that are all, also uh, somewhat related. So, one of the questions is, can you why are students not more frequently and explicit, explicitly encouraged and told that stream entry is possible? Um, when will we, as a Sangha grow mature enough to drop the secrecy around attainments? Um, the other question that slightly I think ties into this, at least in my mind is. Can you please say something about the misinterpretations we make in the West on the teachings? Um, and what, what what did the early Buddhist teachings say regarding this? Um, this is a complex question, isn't it? I mean, Westerners, in the culture that we live in, you know, many people have been, you know, found themselves to be quite casualties emotionally and psychologically of striving and forcing and achieving. Um, you know, the the level of expectation that people in our culture are exposed to through their, you know, their their education lives, their professional lives. You know, we we live in a world, don't we, of sort of images of perfection and shoulds and what we should become and. You know what what a what a successful person looks like and it 's hard it 's hard not to be exposed to those images and I think one of the reactions to that the power of all of that striving and disappointment and judgment that comes with it has been to often talk about the pathway as not really having goals. you know we have a lot of more words in the West about. You know, just being present and just being mindful and nowhere to go, you know, and nothing to do and, you know, nothing to become. And, you know, this has is, this is really come, I think, in some way uh, as a way of trying to take care of that almost embedded tendency to be always leaning forward into somewhere else or being somewhere, someone else. Now, the the early texts don't have any problem with the word word striving, Uh, I would say that. You know, this is uh, actually quite encouraged. Um, Probably didn't live within such an individualistic culture where the sense of self is so implicated in the striving that many people do. But the early teachings have no problem at all with the word striving and have no problem at all with the word goals. Hmm? I mean, it's very, very clear if you you look at the teachings, you know that everybody has a starting point on the path. And although those starting points on the path can be very, very different for different people, you know, very different reasons for practicing, Um, There's also a kind of a sort of universality about the reasons why the path is offered as it is. And for many people, their starting point is either a sense of dissatisfaction in their lives and accompanying that, a sense of possibility. I think without those two, we wouldn't have any, any motivation to practice. Some level of dissatisfaction and some level of possibility. This is clearly very much supported in the early teachings, where, you know the starting point in the path is always some awareness of dukkha. the dukkha that is woven, some of it woven into human life. You know, the pain of pain, the pain that comes with having a body that ages, that becomes ill, that dies, that is subject to conditions. You know, many of the painful emotional states we meet of grief, of loss, of separation. I mean, none of us are exempt from this. You know, part of dukkha is the whole world of, of ever-present change and instability. That doesn't mean that that's somehow negative. It just means that everything that is born, created, comes into being, is incapable of providing a lasting refuge or safety or happiness. So this is the starting point of the path in the early teachings is waking up to dukkha and the invitation that dukkha is to be understood. The completion point of the path, of course, is nibbana. The word enlightenment, by the way, is a much later introduction into this whole languaging. It's a very Western concept. But awakening, nibbana. Cessation of dukkha, cessation of the optional levels of dukkha, of distress, emotional, psychological distress that comes through arguing with the unarguables, that comes through our compounding uh, the pain that is in life with reactivity, with aversion and craving, that this all comes to an end. The Buddha speaks about the cessation, the blowing out the fires, and the unshakable liberation of the heart. The path is what exists between that starting point and that completion point. Now, there's many, many models that are used in the early teachings to describe this waking up process or this process of falling into wakefulness. (coughs) Sometimes the Buddha speaks about liberation through understanding emptiness, speaks about liberation through uh, metta, And one of the maps that are used is this map of uh, four four stages of awakening. The first one is stream entry, where there is a, a, a falling away of personality view and a falling away of attachment and a falling away of doubt. Now, this, in my mind, in any case... Is, is the most significant um, significant stage of this awakening process. Um, because it, 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 of course, changes everything. The falling away of personality view, you know, is the falling away of all of those contracted spaces of "I am." You know, the contracted spaces of, you know, this is me, this is who I am. The, the identification of self-building that, you know, happens so many, many different times in a single day. You know, the, the self at breakfast looking very different than the self at lunch. You know, the I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm extroverted, I'm, I'm a planner, you know, I'm anxious. All of that kind of self-building that we, we can really struggle with because it has such a big family of uh, judgment and comparison and evaluation and um, trying to get rid of and trying to become. So it is the falling away of personality view through understanding. Through understanding that, you know, in, in a sense, the understanding is that you know, the formation of the I am is part of a continuum. It's not like the self exists separate from other processes. It's it's part of a continuum that actually begins with craving and aversion. And when craving and aversion intensify, it, it, it morphs into clinging and grasping and identification. And as clinging and grasping identification intensifies or magnifies, there is the birth of the self of the moment. I think it's very important to be aware of that process, you know, because the English language, in it for, for sure, um, is quite unhelpful because, you know, we, we hear, you know, we use phrases like I'm clinging or I'm craving or I'm aversive or I am, you know, the I begins so many of our senses as sentences as if we're kind of all doing this purposefully. Whereas, actually, the self-in is not that I am clinging. Clinging happens because of the fueling of craving and aversion. So, And and then the formation of the I am. So the the falling away of personality view is, is really the ending of clinging to anything at all. Of the body, the mind, the thoughts, the views the emotions. And, and that is a, a great liberation. It is not only a great liberation inwardly. The formation of personality view is always arising simultaneously with the formation of a sense of the other. Self and other. Whether that other is external or whether it is something within ourselves. So the falling away of personality view is 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 changes our entire relationship of how we actually see any of the remaining fetters because even then they're not seen to be personal descriptions or personal identities they're actually just simply fetters to be understood. Um, so the the the, form, the the falling away of personality view the fo- the formation the second part of this stage of awakening is. Um, usually, when you when you read it in the text, it's about the the falling away of the attachment to rites and rituals, um, and you need to remember that in the in the time of the Buddha rites and rituals were ways that you sort of guaranteed your place in the world. You, know, you made offerings to secure you know, a better future, a better birth. You, know, you made offerings to stand in the, the good light of the gods. You know, you, you made offerings and sacrifices to earn merit and it very much was part of forming how you saw yourself in society. Now, we would look at that and think, well, that doesn't have much to do with us today. But our attachment, our rites and rituals, our habits, the attachment to our habits, you know, Uh, how things have to work in our lives, you know, how other people have to work in relationship to us, you know. Um, how our days have to unfold, you know, the, the many, many psychological, emotional and behavioral habits that we use in the same vein to try and guarantee a certain kind of order or a certain kind of certainty or a certain kind of safety. So the Buddha very much recognized that actually it's quite an illusory safety and quite an illusory order that is offered through this attachment to rites and rituals. <coughs> Just as we need to see, I guess, the same way how illusory is the safety and certainty offered to us through our habits. And the third of these, these, these things that fall away uh, is, is doubt. You know, a stream-enter is one who enters the stream, and they, they enter the stream of the Dharma. You know, they enter a stream of understanding, you know, the understanding of the Eightfold Path, the understanding of the Four Ennobling Truths. A stream-enter is one who actually enters that stream. They're not standing on the banks, kind of paddling their toes. You know, There is that, that immersion in those understandings and this is, this is where doubt comes to an end. It doesn't leave a vacuum behind it. Instead, it is actually replaced by an unshakable confidence in the path, in where the path takes us, and in our own capacity for awakening. So these first three, uh, you know, it's like the falling away of attachment to habits. It doesn't leave a vacuum behind it. It allows us to be surprised in life. It allows us to walk new pathways. Uh, it allows for responsiveness. It allows for us to see anew the falling away of personality. View certainly doesn't leave a vacuum behind it. It allows us to be really the 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 fluid, creative, unfolding beings that we are, with enormous capacity. And I do agree that this is actually really often not much spoken about in the West, you know, as if we're a little embarrassed or a little shy or we we think it's a kind of taboo subject, you know, or whether we think it's kind of like outdated, whether these are understandings that only ever happened to people in the past or only ever happened to people who live ordained lives, you know. Uh, you know, the, the sense of, I mean, i mean it's, it's kind of a, a double bind here, because unless we, we really talk about this, it doesn't really foster that sense of inquiry inwardly, or that sense of aspiration inwardly, or really strengthen that sense of possibility inwardly. So, you know, I, I feel the sort of hesitation about talking about it. I think it's so that people don't feel bad, actually. I think that's why it's not spoken about so much. You know, teachers don't want students to feel bad uh, that they're not there, or that they feel so far. It feels so far away. You know, in 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 many Asian cultures of practice, this is. Quite different, you know. If if you if you walked into a village in in Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka, you know, and 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 ask, you know, rolled up at the at the nearest monastery, you know, and asked the question, are there any stream enterers around here? They'd say, oh yeah, that monastery down there, you know, turn left, you know, they've got a dozen in there, you know, and you know, it's a it's it's quite normalised language. It's quite naturalised language, and. Um, uh, much less so, I, I think, in, in, in the practice in the West, um, for many of the reasons that, I, that I've outlined. But, I, you know, I, I think we, we are actually needing to be a little bit less shy, um, you know, a, a little bit more confident... Uh, in that capacity for awakening, and not turn it into this sort of, you know, such a remote and esoteric uh, description that it feels like it can never have anything at all to do with our own path or our own practice. I mean, personally, I think everybody should practice with the mind of thinking themselves as being students of nibbana. Otherwise, I wonder what we're doing, you know? Um, but to practice with that mind of being students of nibbana, and not fearing that that is somehow going to turn into some dreadful, putative, striving exercise that we're all going to suffer from. I mean, I think we know, and surely that is part of of, of our deepening and understanding, to know when you know self has taken charge of the practice and, and is seeking for some kind of adornment through experiences or, you know, events or things that they can sort of brag about. I mean, surely that must be part of our practice, to know where that sense of selfing is really taking taking charge and being able to, you know, step back from that and, and soften that. Um, but I would certainly encourage you, you know, as, as people who are you know, experience and mature in the practice you, know, you, you may come into the path with you know quite wide agendas you know of you know just uh, wishing for more calmness or more stillness or more generosity or more compassion or more kindness. And these are all very admirable aspirations. But we need to also remember that those very aspirations are also part of the landscape of Nibbana. they're part of the landscape of awakening. (coughs) So that's probably enough on two questions. Um, is, Is there anything on the floor that's up that has some more immediacy before I go into another one that's been offered to me? we live in a culture where me, mine, and I is very emphasized. Do people in our culture need other supporting practices to to bring to this path? Um, comparing with yogis in the Buddhist time where I imagine lived in a much more of a we culture and community and connection. <coughs> what conditions are needed to see that our, uh, so yeah, It it, well, I also don't want to entirely romanticize, uh, I mean, uh, romanticize the culture that the Buddha lived in. As far as I can read from uh, stuff, there was a lot of me, mine, going about, um, you know, and and a lot of contention between people, you know, and a a lot of conflict. I mean, I, 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 I think there is a sort of, timelessness to the human mind, which I I think is why, you know, the Buddhist teaching on non-self was actually so very, very radical at the time, as as it is, again, radical in in our culture, I think, to question what it is to live in the world without being governed by the me and the mind we do need a lot of supporting practices, but they are available to us, and I don't think they're, I'm not convinced that they would be different today than they were 2,500 years ago. I mean, if I think of what we do on this pathway, it it seems to me that everything we do is really concerned with emptying the moment of selfing. You know, you, you think about when we're Cultivating more spaciousness or equanimity, <coughs> all of that is empty in the moment of selfing. When we're cultivating kindness and compassion, all of it is empty in the moment of selfing. When we cultivate generosity, all of it's about emptying the moment of selfing. And it seems we need to keep that maybe more at the forefront, the forefront of our minds.